Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 132, recorded on November 17th, 2019. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. Good to be connected with you and good to be back here in the seat. And we start things out with huge news from Docker. Two bits of news, really. The first is that Mirantis has acquired Docker Enterprise. And the second is that Docker has somewhat restructured and secured $35 million worth of investment. Yeah, okay, so Mirantis, they're a prominent OpenStack and Kubernetes cloud company. They acquired the enterprise product line from Docker, the developers for that product line, the sales associates, the support staff, the general aspects of the business, sans, I would imagine, a few individuals, right over to Mirantis. And this deal is effective immediately. The CEO and co-founder of Mirantis said in an email, quote, we're not disclosing the terms of the deal, the deal closes Wednesday, November 12th in the morning, 2019. So it's already done as we record this. I think you've buried the lead on what they managed to buy here because the most important bit is the 750 enterprise customers that they bought. Is it? 750 is a lot of customers for, like, if I was doing a business, for sure. Like, if I had, you know, Fishnets as my container company, sure, that's a lot. But if I'm Docker... Seems like 750 isn't a ton. Now, the thing is, about 130 of those are huge, ginormous enterprise customers. So they're, they're big customers. So they're very valuable customers. And it's a good starting point. We've been wondering on this show what was going to happen next with Docker. We've noted their struggles to raise funding, to define their product. Everyone's managed to make money off Docker except Docker. Um, and looking at this, it seems like they've figured out a new strategy, and it's developers, 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 <laughs> <Yeah>. because <laughs> looking at this, it seems like the split is the closed source stuff is going with Mirantis, and the open source stuff is staying with Docker proper, and they're going to refocus as a developer workflow and applications tooling company. But I don't understand how they managed to get $35 million for that. I don't understand the business model. They didn't have a successful business model before, and now they've sold the only bit that was making them any money. And somehow they managed to raise $35 million worth of VC. For, for what? How are they going to make money out of that? Well, the funding came from uh, Steve Ballmer, uh, who's focused on uh, funding companies who focus on develop. Oh, okay, all right, too much. No, uh, they got actually the money from Benchmark Capital and Insight Partners. <laughs> Thirty-five million is is no joke for sure. That's a lot of money. I think it is the defining quote unquote of the company, like redefining around development workflow. In their announcement, they write, "Today we start the next chapter in the Docker story, one that is focused." on developers. And then later on in the post, they note, Docker's focus is to build on these foundations to advance developer workflows for modern apps. I think they truly see themselves as the de facto server application distribution platform. Right in your environment, guarantee it works, Docker it all up, and ship it off to your customers. Customers being a loose definition of anybody who's the consumer of what you're making. Right. And I don't see any reason why Docker won't continue to be well used, but I don't see any revenue model there. <sighs> yeah, I have to agree with you. <laughs> I wish I could come up with something. <laughs> Dang it, Joe. Marantis have said that they will continue to support the Docker Enterprise products, but with Docker Swarm, the orchestration software, they're only committing to two years of that support. So it seems like the plan is to kind of shepherd those customers 
over to Kubernetes, which is what most of the industry is doing anyway, right? Yeah, they talk about joining their technology with Kubernetes and bringing, quote, simplicity and choice to enterprises with a cloud-first mandate, end quote. <laughs> so I think it's uh, Kubernetes uh, has won this round is what is happening here. It's It'll give them a, I mean, actually, it'll give them a nice transition path, likely, if you're using Docker Swarm. And you still got two years of support. And in their frequently asked questions, if you want to get support you know, tomorrow morning when you're at work, you just call the same rep. You've always called. They'll still answer the phone. They're still working for them. And that's great for those people. A lot of times, some of these mergers, some of these positions, like the sales positions and the support positions, they get reduced because there's redundancy. So it's nice to see that if you've been working with a rep for the last couple of years, that same rep's going to answer the phone, at least they say. Here we are, another day, another speculative execution vulnerability. Two, in fact. Yeah, Joe, we're getting two for the price of one this week. I think uh, Intel's feeling the holiday spirit. Two different speculative execution attacks. We don't always bring these up, but these ones are noteworthy, both in what they do, but also in just the depth of which Intel has to try to patch this thing. So let's talk about these two bugs. So Riddle and Fallout, the attacks leaked data by exploiting four newly discovered micro-architectural data sampling side-channel vulnerabilities, or MDSs for short, in Intel CPUs. Unlike existing attacks that we've talked about before, these new attacks leak arbitrary in-flight data from CPU internal buffers, including data that was never stored in CPU caches. In the research, they show that existing defenses against speculative execution attacks are inadequate, and in some cases, they actually make things worse. Attackers can use the leaked sensitive data despite the mitigations in place, and due to vulnerabilities that are so deep inside the CPU, they can get access to quite a bit. Uh, For an example, the, the fallout attack can be used to break kernel address space layout randomization which is a big one for getting access to information in RAM. They also show the Riddle defense can allow unprivileged code on machines as with recent CPUs that are patched that can execute that code. It's really bad because the fix is more than just a simple firmware thing. And in some of these, we thought this was already addressed, but now here we are, and it turns out not all of this was as fixed as Intel might have led us to believe. We've been talking about these since late 2017, early 2018. And there have been a lot of these different attacks and vulnerabilities, but there's always been a kind of theoretical element to them and a weighing up of the risk of, do you really need to apply the patches depending on the workload that you're using? Right. And I think Intel have kind of hoped that it would just sort of go away and people would just think, ah, well, this theoretical risk is there, but it's a pretty small risk. But now with the latest round of vulnerabilities, it's starting to feel a bit more real and a bit of a higher risk. And maybe Intel's strategy of not fixing this at the hardware level quickly and maybe even delaying the newer generations of their chips until they'd fixed it, maybe that is turning out to be not such a great idea. So I see it as two things. It's possible Intel is working on the next generation that solves a lot of this at the hardware level, but it's a little ways out and they don't want to hurt sales of existing products in the pipeline. Yeah. That's possible. 
Or it's possible that Intel is just planning to try to fix this with software and then get the speed up over time. And I think that was the one that none of us thought would actually be their long-term play. We all kind of thought, okay, that'd be the move for the processors on the market right now. But by the time 2020 is around, we'll have a new architecture, some improvements that will fix this and everything will be good. And these software patches will be just a thing of these generations. Now it looks like that might have been wishful thinking. And it's not like Intel can just reinvent this overnight. Uh, These are things they've built up over many, many generations. Lots of software has been made with uh, assumptions that some of these features are in place. Maybe Intel has looked at it and said, this is the only route. Better make sure everybody's uh, using LVFS or something similar. (laughs) But the way they've treated the security researchers is not great, really. Yeah, that is concerning. Yeah. And also the open source community. I mean, they've made some improvements in a lot of ways, but projects are still not super happy. And just recently, Greg KH from the kernel was talking about how if you really, truly want to be secure, not only do you need all these microcode fixes, but you also just need to turn off hyperthreading. Yeah, which significantly impacts performance and just makes your cloud instances much more expensive to run. Yeah. When Intel does a release like this, they work with 300 different organizations to prepare and coordinate the release of their own spins of Intel's updates. They have a whole ecosystem of partners. But then you think about it, they have a stack of software. It's not just CPU microcode, but there's also microcode in the GPU and in the different uh, buses. There's like all, you know, chips in there, Joe. (laughs) They all need updates, like all kinds of chips that do different things. They call it the microchip. (laughs) Yeah, and we're talking about an operating system on these CPUs, essentially. It's, It's basically a computer within your computer. Yeah, it's crazy. And so they're coordinating across all of these different companies, across these software stacks, and trying to patch this thing and go after it. And, um... They kind of implied six months ago that some of this stuff was fixed that turns out now isn't. Uh, we'll have some links in the show notes for lots of good details. I, I actually encourage some some homework on this one because the MDS attacks are pretty interesting. You can go read that directly at mdsattacks.com. They have a really quick write-up. It's not super flashy. They're not, you know, they're not like uh, trying to sell merch. It's just some solid research from some universities and uh, a little bit of uh, corporate research too. Well, maybe one solution is just to switch to ARM, and that's at the heart of the Pine phone, which you can now buy, at least as we record. The Braveheart edition, which they stress is a limited edition aimed solely for developers and early adopters, those who like to tinker. It's called the Braveheart edition, and I, I love it. They say estimated dispatches in late December, early January 2020. You're saying this is for people who like to mess with computers. I think it is indeed. Uh, I pre-ordered one, $150 uh, US greenbacks as we record. A couple of notable things about it. It has a 1440 by 720 screen with an 18 by 9 aspect ratio. It's got a 64-bit quad-core 1.2 gigahertz ARM Cortex A53 and a Mali 400 GPU. Yeah, this is pretty low end, but it's designed to run proper Linux, things like Ubuntu Touch or Postmarket OS. That's what makes this stand out. Yeah, in fact, it won't even ship with an OS. They write on here, various open source mainline Linux or BSD mobile OSs. Various. <laughs> it's quaint. Well, pick your own. Uh, and you know what? You could. It's got 16 gigabytes of eMMC. It also has micro SD, so you can go up to two terabytes. It's got two gigabytes of RAM, so you could probably pretty comfortably run a lot of mobile operating systems. I think I'd probably go for Ubuntu Touch 
my first attempt. I love that it has USB-C for both charging, but also it does DisplayPort out of that. So you could even try some convergence action. Yeah, and it's even got a 3.5 mil headphone jack. How did they do that? Holy smokes. <laughs> no, how did they fit that in there? Yeah, I mean, this is not going to take on the latest iPhone or Android phone. It's not designed for that. The whole point of it is it's basically a development device. It's a device for people who just want to tinker with the likes of Ubuntu Touch. It's kind of like almost a reference device for that. And it's cheap, it's low spec, and it's all about the community in terms of the software for it. Pine are going to make the hardware, as usual, and it's up to the community to put software on it. I've always dreamed of a line of mobile phones that you could load your own OS on like you can on a PC. You know, the PC isn't perfectly free, but you can load just about any compatible operating system you want. It's it's an open platform in that sense. I see a world where you and I both have the same hardware, but we're we're running two different operating systems. Yeah, I could see that happening. And I've ordered mine, so we will actually potentially be in that situation where we're both running different operating systems there. <laughs> I guess so. I guess it won't be theoretical so soon. I think that's what I love about the Pine phone. And it brings that down to a, a really approachable price. And I could easily see them bringing that up over time as they get the device sorted and they get the software sorted and hardware refined. There's so much potential here. That's that's why we reached out to Lucas, and we're going to have him on Linux Unplugged this week, on Tuesday's episode of Linux Unplugged, which will be episode 328, linuxunplugged.com slash 328. Yeah, don't go there yet, because there won't be anything. <laughs> Not yet. But in a couple of days, there will. <laughs> Maybe by the time you're listening, depending on when you catch this, or if you're way in the future, it's, it's totally there. Well, they call it the Braveheart edition, and it's not the only brave thing in the news this week. (laughs) (laughs) No, Brave has hit version 1.0. The Brave open source browser is out of beta. If we had a klaxon, I think it would sound at this point, blockchain, blockchain, blockchain. That's what this browser seems to all be about. Oh, okay, maybe a little bit. But they've kind of done it in a pretty slick way. So the the blockchain is used for their VAT token, which is a unit of your attention. And it's also they use some sort of blockchain system for their syncing. So you link devices to a chain, and then they all sync amongst each other. That's really a cool way to do it. So the the core of Brave is they are trying to find a way to monetize for creators in a way that doesn't violate privacy and it isn't creepy while building all of that into a really optimized, fast, blink-based browser. I kind of went all in over the weekend to test it for the story. I've never used their monetization stuff, and I thought, well, I'll give it a go. And it's not bad. They've done it in a in sort of a tasteful way. You can opt into certain ads. The selection is all done on device. It's not tracking you to do it. And you earn these points that you can tip creators with. So say um, Late Night Linux was on there. Somebody who went to your website a lot uh, could accumulate these tokens by, by, by viewing the private ads, and then they could tip those to you. You can then, with one of their partners, actually convert that into currency in your local neck of the woods. Which is something I've thought about before, but it just always seemed a bit of a pipe dream, like you're not really going to make that much money out of it, and it's not really worth it as a publisher to go through the effort of setting it up. If it got to a certain scale, I could see it. Yeah, I think there's a certain critical mass of users that would have to get there, and I suppose you have to be an early adopter at some point. 
but I use this browser to do all my research for this episode of Linux Session News. And went through the setup and everything, and it was pretty nice, and I could select the dark mode, and it was a nice browser to use. I didn't initially set up the um, reward stuff, but then I thought, well, I'll give that a go, and I tried to enable it, and then I just started to get all these notifications uh, just for random stuff that just annoyed me, and I had a bit of a bad experience with it, I must say. I had a good experience with the browser. The browser itself is lean, works well, I mean, it's Chromium Blink-based, so what do you expect? It worked perfectly. But when I started to go into that value-add stuff, it just felt a bit spammy to me. Yeah, I found it better on the desktop. I found it a little too much on the mobile, but I was glad to see you could turn it down. Well, my experience was a lot more positive than I expected. I've I've tried a many <laughs> Blink-based browsers, um, and also I spent a lot of time with just Chrome and Chromium. I am a very happy Firefox user, except for a handful of websites I use that just, they just work better under Chrome. Uh, They often have to do with audio and video and they just work better under Chrome. And I keep slipping back to Chrome and it is something that truly does bother me because I do feel like it's too invasive. It, It knows too much about what I'm doing. Brave does everything Chrome does for me. Everything's just as compatible. All of the extensions I like work, but none of the shame of using the Google tracking product. And that's why I was kind of impressed with the way they do the sync system. I was impressed with the speed. It seems to use less memory than Chrome does. For me, it's now the number one competitor to Firefox. They're doing and talking a lot of the same walk that Firefox is now, but they've been doing this for years. I mean, they're talking about building in automatic tracker blocking, brave shields. There's just like a heavy focus, a real intentional focus on privacy and security. A lot of what we're hearing come out, coming out of Mozilla now, including, surprise, surprise, a built-in VPN. Well, we're talking about this coming out of beta finally, getting to a 1.0, but the reality is this has been around since 2016, early 2016, and Mozilla have been watching it and copying some of the features and all the good stuff we've been saying about Firefox over the last year or so with the privacy stuff, blocking of tracking, a lot of that has been inspired at least by Brave. That's kind of good enough for me. I'm invested heavily in Firefox. And so I, I can't see myself switching to Brave. I can see myself having it installed as a kind of secondary browser. But I do wonder whether it'll be able to do quite everything that Chrome does. Yeah, I agree. I don't think there's anything here that's going to draw people away from Firefox that are really longtime Firefox users. And Mozilla is making the right moves to sort of catch up. But there is some real nipping of the heels here. So with version 1.0, here's some interesting stats. They have 3 million active users on a daily basis. Um, that's a lot. When they last measured, they had 8.7 million monthly active users overall. And they've just released 1.0 on Android, iOS, Windows 10, Mac OS, Linux, all the platforms, they just did a nice, solid execution of a really solid 1.0. So they're kind of just getting started. I know we've talked about Brave a lot. One of the things that caught my attention was when they switched off of running on Electron. That was a huge move back in 2018. And then in June of 2019, they rewrote 
their ad blocking rule matching algorithm and implemented it in Rust. And there's claims that things like 69 times faster than implementations that are in C++. And they, they, they used the algorithms of uBlock Origin and GoStream, one of, two of my favorites, to kind of design their algorithm. Only it's crazy fast. Like there's just things about Brave that for Chrome users are very compelling. And I think that's who their market is, is this is a Chrome browser without the shame and a lot of nice privacy stuff built in. And maybe, maybe given the heritage of this project, a possible way to monetize creators, because it's not slouches involved with this project either. There's, there's real experience behind this browser. Well, yeah, Brendan Ike, who was a co-founder of Mozilla and invented JavaScript. We're talking about someone who has some very serious experience in this area. And they're executing really well. I was really impressed. The last time I checked in with Brave, I was like, oh, yeah, that's nice. And I didn't reinstall it the next time I reloaded my system. So it's been since their change away from Electron that I checked it out. Uh, So a little over a year now. And I am not installing Chrome anymore. I'm installing Brave now. I also really like the mobile app. I didn't try the mobile app. Maybe I should uh, give it a go. Yeah, get a little uh, blockchain action going there, Joe. I love me some syncing. It's just something about doing some research like on your phone and you create a quick bookmark folder and you go back to your desktop to finish it up and it's all right there. And the icons for the favicons are all in there and everything's perfect. And just, I I love it. And they're not the only one to do it, but I like that it's... uh, I like this way they link them. You'll have to you'll have to try it to see what I'm talking about. You you do have to scan a QR code from your phone on your screen. There's <laughs> a little bit of a manual process, but it feels feels really well done. Well, a launch that looks like it's not going to go very well is Google's Stadia game streaming service, which is supposed to be happening pretty much as you listen to this. Now, Chris, you pre-ordered the uh, Founders Edition. Are you excited for this? I still am. However, I kind of agree with the Verge's headline. The whole world is waiting for Stadia to flop. It's a real issue for Google because it's one of these services that's going to take a couple of years to fully mature from a game development standpoint, but also from just a service feature standpoint. But I bet you a lot of people don't even think this thing will last two years because of Google's reputation for killing projects. And then when it, when it comes to something where you're going to buy games and they're going to be in a library that's in Stadia, it really gets kind of uncomfortable because there's a lack of trust that Google will keep this thing around. And it, it looks like on launch, it's not quite what we were expecting. Chrome gameplay won't support 4K, HDR, or 5.1 surround. They'll be added in updates later. So that sort of stinks because that's how I was planning to play this is via Intel graphics laptops on Linux in a Chrome browser, so I won't get full resolution. That's a little unfortunate. There's other things that don't work, like some of the sharing features. For me, the one that bothers me the most is family sharing won't be available. It won't be supported on day one, so you'll have to buy each game for each of your kids. This was going to be a big thing for me, is uh, I have family sharing across my Google accounts. It was implied that this would be a supported feature, and um, it simply isn't. It's really kind of... I don't know. It's a little underwhelming. Also, I probably the number one killer thing, Joe, is they're only going to have 12 games at launch. Yeah, that's not ideal. And you've got that NVIDIA Shield in the living room area in the studio with that enormous TV and the, the nice sound system and everything. And you're not going to be able to use it on that straight away. No, I can unplug my Shield and hook up the Chromecast Ultra that comes with the Founders Edition. That's another issue, by the way. 
other Chromecast Ultra units that are in the market today, they're out in the field that people own, they won't play Stadia games. My Chromecast Ultra will, but existing Ultras will not until an over-the-air update comes along sometime after the launch of Stadia. <laughs> it's just not great. Now, the, the dozen games thing, the reason why I think that's so low, this is my speculation, but it's because they are requiring developers to make modifications to the game. They're not just taking straight PC or console ports, which some YouTubers are reporting. They are actually having development shops modify the games to work with the Stadia system. And that... That's really hard. I watched a lot of interviews with different members of the Stadia team, and I think what happened here is they engineered the hell out of this thing. They came up with some incredible solutions to solve latency. They came up with some great tricks to run the games faster on the server but still send you 60 frames a second so they can be ahead of you. They they really ironed out some Herculean encoding issues that are magic. But in doing all of this, I don't really think they focused on game partnerships and development shop partnerships. And so where the Microsoft service, when it launches, will launch with more than 50 titles, Stadia is going to launch tomorrow with a dozen. And I don't know for sure, but I bet a lot of them would probably just work under Proton, and I wouldn't need this. (laughs) Yeah, I think that what we've got here is Google wanting to be first to market because that's always very important. And the xCloud service from Microsoft is still in preview. And so it hasn't officially launched, whereas Stadia will launch tomorrow. It will be the first to market of the the big players, at least. Obviously, there's been plenty of game streaming services in the past that have just not really worked out and ultimately failed. But of the big players, they're going to be first. And maybe it's just not ready. I mean, it certainly sounds that way. I know it sounds crazy, but... I had a great experience with OnLive back in 2010. Like, it worked great for me. And I've used other streaming services. There's one on my NVIDIA Shield, and it's been fantastic for me. I played, like, a whole Batman game, and it was fun. We really enjoyed it. Never had to download any software. Never had to try to, you know, load a Windows um, Proton environment. It was just great. It worked. And I loved it. Never concerned. Never had an issue with lag. And those are existing services that are on the market today. Google has quite the networking infrastructure. So they could, from a networking standpoint, they can really pull this thing off. But something else that they're doing, which is very clever, is because they have the horsepower, they're running these games at 120 frames per second. And they're sending you 60. So they're using that difference to compensate for lag or to figure out what you're doing next. Like they have, they're ahead of you, essentially. And it's a, it's just enough of a window that they can do some really cool tech. Uh, and you could see how they could integrate this across their product line with Android, with YouTube. So you, you're watching a, you're watching a playthrough on YouTube and one link in the show description and now you're playing the game inside your browser. The Chromebooks, all of the, this turns all Chromebooks into gaming machines overnight once this thing's done. There's a lot of tie-ins across their entire ecosystem with Google Play and Google Store credits and all of that where you can use Google Play credits to buy games that you can play on Stadia. If they don't make this work, it's shameful. Yeah, and if they don't make it work, then is this finally curtains for the idea of it? Because as you say, you had good experiences before, but the economics just did not make sense. How much is just one GPU? Hundreds of dollars. And in order to have all of that infrastructure, there's so much investment there that 
they're not going to get back directly through revenue. So they're going to have to monetize it in other ways. And maybe that's where everyone else failed. And maybe Google will succeed because they can just mine data and somehow make more money out of it. But it, it just seems like the whole concept is just doomed to failure to me. Keep in mind, the free version of Stadia doesn't launch until sometime next year. In my mind, that's when the rubber really has to meet the road. That's when this service becomes available to everyone, is once it goes free. You'll have to pay for games, although there'll probably be a couple that are decent that are included for free. But that's really when this thing goes live. This is like a pre-launch. You've, you've had to pay for a Founders Edition. They're trickling the shipments out. They're not landing on, on launch day like the impression was. Mine doesn't show up until somewhere between December 2nd and December 8th or something like that. What, you mean a Google employee is not going to drive it to your house? You heard about that. Yeah, that's rough, huh? <laughs> yeah, that's how... There's just been a lot of... Google has a hard time shipping, as they put it, atoms. They, As they say, they're great at bits and they struggle with shipping atoms. Fair enough. <laughs> it does seem to be the case. I I don't know what their deal is, but um, I think if they stick with this thing for the long term, they really could have something here. If they integrate it across all of the Google products, they make it simple to game from Chrome and YouTube, easy to link people right to a state in a game, all of the stuff that they promised. They actually make their wireless controllers truly wireless and not require a USB-C cable when you use them. Like There's all these things they can do that are Technically doable once this thing's a service because they don't have to ship you a console for any of this. So it's really just a matter of them pulling it off. I, my, if I was going to bet on one though, I'd bet on Microsoft. <laughs> I'd bet on Microsoft. I, I know Sony's working on theirs, but I'd bet on Microsoft. Yeah, I think I have to agree with you there. But I do want Google to succeed with this because it's all running Linux in their data centers. And ultimately, we will all as a community benefit, at least in some ways, with graphics drivers, and just generally upstreaming of at least some of the stuff to make this work. That's fundamentally it. Because Google requires that the game manufacturers make their games run on Linux using Vulkan, the hope is it opens up a wider set of games to be published on Linux. Stadia is the streaming platform that enables that. I really, 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 really doubt that's the case for Sony's, and I know it's not the case for Microsoft's. Well, you're definitely going to have to tell us all about your experiences when it does finally arrive. Yeah, they, they point out, you don't have to wait for the hardware. Once it ships and you get your email, your account's active. Uh, it's a service, so you could go play in Chrome and just wait for your controller to show up later. So I will, Joe. I'll play video games and report packs so you don't have to. It's a hard life. That's right. If you want to hear how that goes, go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for that and, well, all new episodes. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. And if you've got a little extra time this week, check out Choose Linux 22, chooselinux.show slash 22. The gang talks about the best ways to get involved in different open source communities and finding like-minded people. It's pretty great. It's a great resource. Yeah, I had a lot of fun recording that episode, even if Elle did tell me off for not preparing properly for my conference talk. <laughs> well, she takes that very seriously. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. See you later. Later.